Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. Today, we get to hear from Pete Enns. Pete is a Bible scholar, theologian, and professor. He has written several books and loves to share his insights via blogging and his podcast, The Bible for Normal People. He is a fantastic teacher and desires to help others understand the nuances found in Scripture. Before we begin, I just want to remind you that we may not always share the same viewpoints or opinions as our guests, but our desire is for people to feel safe to join us at the table and on this journey of life together. I may not come to the same conclusions on everything Pete has, and you might not either, but at least we can come together and bridge the divide with grace. My desire is to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself and stir up good conversations. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So please, Listen in as we talk about church and the Bible. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am your host, Ariana, and I am very excited to chat with Pete Enns today. Welcome, Pete. Thank you so much. Yeah, so you are a... Bible scholar and theologian, and a professor and prolific author. Um, I've read uh, several of your books, and they have been very um, inspirational, but also key in my faith journey. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Definitely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. You currently live in Pennsylvania with your wife, and I believe that you are a grandfather as well. I am two times yeah. over now. So yeah, we okay. live outside of Philadelphia, uh, which is you know close to where Eastern University is in um, yeah. suburban Philadelphia. I'm a little bit further north, but yeah. And uh, we've been living here for 20 some odd years. And uh, before Eastern, I uh, did some work for BioLogos, which um, some of you may have heard of. Yeah, uh, sort of science faith kind of thing. And um, I also taught seminary for um, a bunch of years, about 14 years. So, uh, yeah, I've been doing this Bible stuff for a while. Still, yeah. trying to, still trying to figure it out, and that's fine. Isn't that part of the joy of it, is the continual learning and discovering about what it all means? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, teaching undergrads there too you know it, it just it just in the act of trying to internalize and teach these things you just keep seeing angles that you haven't seen before but others have seen so yeah. uh you know i think it's 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 pretty cool it's, it's a gift that keeps on giving it just it doesn't get old that's right. that's really it for me it's not the same old thing every semester even teaching the same book uh like every every spring i teach genesis to the seniors who are, you know, Bible and theology majors. And, you know, you, you just, you always see something different. They see different things. You read different things, uh, different books or articles and things. It's just, you know, there's, the, people have seen so much in these stories that, uh, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't get old. There's always something to learn if you're keeping your eyes and ears open. Yeah, right. And having different students all the time would also bring different perspectives, right? Absolutely, yeah. And they do. They do. they definitely have different perspectives. So yeah. uh, <laughs> how dare they? But they do. <laughs> they do. So, um, and that's great, you know, because, uh, you know, I don't think I have all the answers to life's questions. And, and sometimes the questions that people ask actually take you to a different place than you're used to mm -hmm. being. You know, because yeah. I have my own sets of questions, but they may have others that I hadn't thought about. And right. that sort of takes you down this road, this journey to, uh, you know, looking at things from a different angle. And I think that's great. Yeah. So then what first got you interested in theology and hermeneutics? And also, can you explain to me what hermeneutics means? Sure. Uh, hermeneutics is just a, you know, million dollar word for uh, biblical in interpretation of any kind. Um and so, you know, biblical hermeneutics has to do with how you interpret. It's it's not, it's a little bit different than, you know, another word, exegesis, which has to do with, like, reading the text, and here's what it means. Hermeneutics is different. It's like one step uh, behind that, like, your approach to how you interpret the Bible. And an example, an example of a hermeneutic might be a literalist, hermeneutic, like a literal way of reading the text. That's an approach to the text. That's a hermeneutic. And others may be more, let's say, 
have symbolic ways of reading it or metaphorical ways of reading it. And that's also a hermeneutic. That's sort of a posture or an attitude toward the text. And that's where all the arguments happen, really. It's not how you interpret. It's, it's what's behind how you interpret. Right. So, um, yeah, that's an important thing, you know, that to, be, to become self-aware of what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. Hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's sort of going down the rabbit hole at that point. But it's, I think it's necessary. So. Yeah. And why did you get into that? Why did I get into this? I've been asking myself that question for a long time. Um, <laughs> I think you know I had a I was raised in a in in a Christian home, loosely considered. Like my parents were immigrants from Germany. We didn't like go to church all the time. I wasn't raised an evangelical or a fundamentalist or anything. But we were confirmed. My sister and I were confirmed Lutheran in like junior high school and. And then in high school, I had a conversion experience in a Nazarene church um, oh, wow. in, where I used to live in New Jersey, uh, outside of New York City. And, um, you know, that just led, one thing led to another, and I started getting just curious intellectually about my faith, especially after college. I just realized that I just don't really understand this thing that I say I believe in, and then that made me want to read. And... I just kept reading like anything that had to do with the Bible or the Christian faith, like church history or biblical interpretation, um, theology, philosophy, anything to, anything that had to do with that. And I was never a big reader in college. This was sort of like an intellectual awakening for me because I really wanted to understand. And that eventually led me to seminary. And I was in seminary for four years. And during that time, I, I never really... I didn't go with a clear idea of here's what I want to do. I was just really curious and I wanted to engage questions and think about them. And mm-hmm. about halfway through my four years, I landed on the, the, the desire to do a PhD in Old Testament studies in some form. And that's, you know, what happened two years later. Then I went to graduate school and, you know, learned uh, a real different way of thinking about some things that made just instinctive sense to me compared to, let's say, the more conservative traditional approach that the seminary took right uh, was a student. And all that just, it was just like discovery after discovery or awakening after awakening, not to exaggerate, but I felt that way, like, oh my goodness gracious, that's why they say this. Mm. I was always told they were the bad guys. This makes right. perfect sense. I get it. And it was like, oh my goodness gracious, all these doors are opening and and it was thrilling, you know? It it wasn't it wasn't really frightening. It was a little unsettling at times, but all in all, it was a very positive thing to just have a sense of like, I think I know what's going on in this book better now than I did a few years ago. Yeah. And I guess that would make you want to share that with other people too, right? Yeah. And not everybody wants to hear it, but no. No, that's, but that happens too. But no, yeah, definitely. And then, you know, by that time I knew that I'd wanted to, to teach when yeah. I was in graduate school. But um, yeah, it's it's fun teaching things to students who want to learn too. And, and you sort of walk them through the paces. And you can't reproduce your own life in students because I've been at this a lot longer. I mean, I started doing this 10 years before they were born, so... I can't yeah. expect them to catch up, and that's not the point. The point is more to expose them to things that are how a lot of learned people think about some of these issues in the Bible so that you know they don't, in their 40s, email me or whatever we're going to be doing in 20 years uh, mm-hmm. and, and say, why didn't you tell me any of this stuff? Why mm-hmm. did you leave me in the dark? You know, they'll, they'll watch a a special on, on cable t- TV about the Bible like at Christmas time or Easter time. They always come out like on the history channel and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they look at things from a point of view that's not trying to defend the Bible or not trying to be traditional, but just talking about scholarly approaches. And, uh, you know, that can be really challenging for people who have never heard of it before. And, um, you know, I don't think I'm doing my job as a professor if I leave students in their comfort zone, but I have to try to draw them out of it without making them feel as if they have to reject their whole lives up to this point, because they don't have to do that either. Yeah. So 
Then you said that you were raised in a Christian family and you have, it sounds like varying experiences with church. So how did that affect your belief system and like what you decided to, when you decided to pursue theology and things like that? Um, yeah. Can you tell more about that? Definitely. Yeah. I think this is more of an issue when, you know, people come from somewhat traditional backgrounds. You know, I was never a fundamentalist. And, I, you know, I don't mean fundamentalism in a negative way. I just mean it more in a descriptive way. I was never really a biblical literalist or anything. I wasn't raised that way. But I I did, a lot of my education did come within the world of evangelicalism or traditional forms of Christianity. Yeah. Calvinism, for example. And uh, you know, that was sort of where I cut my teeth, but then you sort of leave that nest and you go fly someplace else, and then you find new ways of thinking. And like you said before, you sort of want to share that, and you're sort of excited to talk about it and think about it. But, you know, not everyone else is. And that's that's sort of the the um, the challenge that people like me, and there are many, 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 many people like me who went to, let's say, traditional seminaries— and then went off to a research university to do studies in the ancient Near Eastern world or Mesopotamia that involves the Bible. And it's hard to sometimes come back to where mm -hmm. you were. Mm -hmm. And if you do, there's sometimes a lot of tension because you're seeing things that maybe the president or dean don't see. And they couldn't be expected to see because their field is business or chemistry. Right. Right. So then it becomes a really difficult navigation sometimes to... How can you be a part of that community without really thinking the same way they do? And sometimes from like from my point of view, that's easier, I think, than it is from their point of view because they're trying to protect the community. Yeah. And and that that can be really difficult and it's it's not easy. And, you know, I've had my own moments in my life where I've I've, you know, had to navigate that and, and make some difficult decisions. Right. I feel like that as well in my church experience, too, because I grew up in the evangelical church, but then I started wondering and asking questions, and then it's like, okay, yeah. how do we uh, reconcile this? And so, yeah, you've said before that church is too often the most risky place to be spiritually honest. How do you think that Western evangelicalism has affected our views and understanding of the Bible, and how do our churches hinder us from being spiritually honest? Yeah, I mean that's a huge question, but I think you know it's this is this is very much a cultural thing, mm -hmm. and that's the thing we have to remember. It's not about being biblical or not; it's about how people are biblical within certain cultural influences and frameworks and you know, people have written a lot about this, and, and they know much more than I do, but, you know, you can trace things back to, you know, America's different than England in this respect. And right. I don't know, I, I mean, the Canadian scene I'm not as familiar with, but I'm, I imagine there are analogous things that happen in America where, you know, people came over and they settled here, and there's no state church. So... Mm -hmm that's basically the Bible. And the further west you move, you take the Bible with you. You don't take, um, uh, a, like, uh, a, a, a ecclesiastical hierarchy. In other words, there's no, there's no church telling you what to do. So the authority is the Bible. Right. And um, Mark Knoll, for example, is a church historian. He's written about this. So I'm just riffing off of what he said. But, um, you know, the, the thing is that the Bible has been set up in American culture to sort of be, you know, to put it indelicately, sort of like a paper pope, that yeah. it's right here in writing and it's clear because God said it. Okay. But then, you know, enter the 19th century and you have things like, you know, Darwin, right? And, and the, the rise of biblical archaeology mm -hmm. that found and continues to find all sorts of interesting things that help us understand the Bible better, but also show how much the Bible and the stories in the Bible are part of the ancient world, and how the stories of the Bible mirror or parallel or echo older stories from Assyria or Babylon or Egypt or some other places. 
And I think, see, that to me is the beginning of the serious tension between what came to be called the modernists and the fundamentalists. The modernists are saying we have to engage this stuff. The fundamentalists are saying, no, we don't, because it's just hurting the faith. And that battle has been around since, you know, at least the the mid-late 19th century, if not before, right. in America. And and we're still into the Scopes um, monkey trial in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. That was that was sort of the, the crowning moment for the American religious consciousness that it's come to this. You know, are we going to teach the truth of the Bible in schools, or are we going to listen to this newfangled theory called evolution? And I, I think a lot of our country is still sort of responding to that, and it's been almost 100 years now. And, and you can see the effects of it just out there when you have— denominations called Bible something or other, right? Bible church, yeah. and it's holding on to the Bible. You have Bible colleges, and you have seminaries that are very conservative, and many of them were born out of that conflict, and sort of that helped set the DNA. So you have conservative Christian colleges, conservative seminaries that were responding to this threat of the modern world, and that's just, it's, it's part of our DNA, and, and it's very polarized. It's, yeah. It has been, and it continues to be. And, um, you know, it's, it's a shame, but I think it's, it's a phenomenon. You know, it's, it's, not, it, it's not that, you know, the, again, not to be crass about it, but it's not that the conservatives are sort of the normal Christians, and this is what people have always believed back to Moses. That is also a cultural phenomenon, conservative American Christianity, fundamentalism. And, you know, the more liberal side, too, you know, that's that's part of cultural movements and things being shaken up. It's just that different groups have responded to these things differently. And, you know, like I said, that that hasn't stopped. I think that's that's still going. Um, hopefully things are moving in a, in a less uh, tense direction and maybe people can talk more about these things. But. Yeah, I think it comes from that. I, th I think it really, you can point to the last, say, 150 years or so in American history and see how things just started happening like this, and they're still happening. Right. Yeah, and like I said before, I did grow up in an evangelical church. They call themselves non-denominational, but mm -hmm. it's very much evangelical. Yeah. And I have been a part of that experience of not really knowing how to be spiritually honest about the questions that I have and the thoughts that I'm having about pretty much everything in regards to church and the Bible and yeah. big life questions. Um, so what, like, do you have encouragement or like tips or pointers for people who desire to push back against this a, a little bit, like to to start questioning, but they don't know how to start. Yeah, um, I think a lot depends on the context that people are in, because, I mean, I won't lie, it's it's really hard to maintain a community, to be a part of a community that you're used to being a part of. Yeah. When, like you said, the questions are not, questioning is not a normal part of the faith. Right. It's what people who don't have faith do. So when you start asking questions, there's something wrong with you. Yes, exactly. If that's the context that you're in, it's hard to start asking questions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I found true is that people in churches like that, they want to stay because there's a beautiful community there. And, you know, the kids are happy. And all those are good reasons to stay in a church, I think. But they sort of bond with others in the church who, you know— feel the same way and have the same experiences and also want to talk about it and are maybe a bit dissatisfied because they can't ask questions that they want to ask. And not just ask the questions, but maybe even give tentative answers to those questions mm -hmm. that will run afoul of what the church teaches. Right. And that's a really difficult place to be. And that's something that's been happening a lot the past hundred years or so. And we're in this, I think we're in a part of a shift culturally and cultural shifts take a long time to shift, but um, we're living at the wrong time, Ariana. You know, it's like, you know, we we should be 
living 100 years ago or 100 years from now, things might be a little bit more different, but we're still living in those tension points where conservative churches, and again, I mean this descriptively, not not negatively, not as a poke, but a lot of what they do, a lot, a lot of the reason for existing is to defend their tradition, not to engage it, not to dialogue over it. It's to protect it because they know they're right. And for people who, for whatever reason, sort of wake up to the fact that there are so many other kinds of Christians in the world, and they think different things than we do, and I'm not really always convinced by some of the answers that we get to difficult questions in sermons or in Sunday school classes. Um, you know, uh, that's, that is, you know, that's a difficult place to be, and sometimes the only way to navigate that is to leave. Hmm. Yeah. Then I guess that would kind of tie into what I was going to ask next. You wrote a book back in 2005 that didn't receive positive criticism. What was the result of that? Because you were just talking about how sometimes you may have to leave your community based on like the questions and things that you're asking. So what was the result of that? And did it affect your faith journey? Well, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, I wrote this book called Inspiration and Incarnation, which was my attempt to sort of crystallize things that I was teaching at the seminary where I was at the time over several years and to try to like move forward with things like, you know, like taking the historical context seriously affects how we think about the Bible, but we need to do that. And it, uh, it, it wasn't well received by everyone in our community, mainly from the people that matter, the people that sign paychecks and things like that. But it was, I mean, it, it was very positively accepted elsewhere. You know, it's still selling and it's still, you know, I think helping people. But you know, that's not the point. The point is that within that community, it was seen to be disruptive by some. And you know, it was that was a very difficult time for me because, you know, my job was on the line for several years after I, after the book came out. And I wound up finally leaving about three years later. Um, and it was you know, just prompted by people who had different visions for what the school was supposed to be, which is really what it comes down to. That's the same thing with churches. You know, when churches disagree, people in churches disagree about matters of theology or church teaching. The The battle really is who gets to tell the narrative of the church? Who gets to tell the narrative of your family, right? Who gets to tell the narrative of this institution, and all these things are connected. You know, I mean, things that happen in institutions are analogous to things that happen at the home or happen in churches. So, and that's really what it was. And so I left. And, you know, to be honest, I, when I left, I was so happy. <laughs> it didn't affect yeah. negatively anything in my life. Right. It was just actually beautiful. And I was free. And, you know, I didn't really have a job, but I didn't need one right away, you know, if you know what I mean. So uh, there were always severance packages, things like that. So it was it was a time to just sort of finally have people not tell me what to think. And it was a very freeing time. But what I found was that about maybe six or eight months later, everything came crashing down on me because with no one giving me the parameters, this is what you must believe, and you sort of go along with things without always being conscious that you're just going along with it. Um, it I became very conscious of the fact that without anyone telling me what to believe, I'd heard this little voice inside of me saying, okay, Pete, so what do you believe? And my answer was, I don't have the foggiest idea what I believe. Yeah. Like Everything from like not just fine points of theology, but does life have any meaning and does God even exist? And what does it even mean to say God exists? Mm -hmm. And so I, it was, it was a, a time that, you know, I'd look back on and say, this was really formative for me, but it was difficult to not, to have your entire life narrative almost erased, which a lot oh. of people have felt, right? So, and that was, that was hard for me. And, and I call it my atheist phase, but I don't, I don't say that, to be sort of snarky about it, it, it was a period of time where I did not know where this was going to end. Mm -hmm. And I remember just 
lying on my sofa. This all this started like maybe February, March, April of I didn't tell you the date. It was uh, two thousand nine. Oh, and yeah. through the summer and into the fall, and I remember lying on my couch just saying, I'll never sing a Christmas hymn again. Because mm. I don't I don't think I believe any of it, you know? And and so it was it was really um unsettling for me. And, you know, later I learned language like the dark night of the soul where everything seems distant and God is nowhere to be found. And um you know, I found that to be good language for me. And I also learned that those are the times when God might be closer than you think, mm-hmm. because what you need is a reset. And, uh, you know, it, and I, it, this is all in hindsight, you know, but I came to sort of understand that time period as not God was distant, but the God that I had in my imagination was no longer working. Right. And it was time to take a further step forward. And the only way that happens is with some pain, I think. The pain of losing everything and things being very, very dark. And um, and, and coming into contact with people who had suffered in other ways and had entered a different kind of way of thinking about the nature of the Christian faith, a little bit more contemplative, a little more intuitive. You know, I'm an intellectual person. That's I'm a, You know, I have a PhD. I teach this stuff, right? So that's my sweet spot is the whole left brain thing. But the the right brain, the intuition and the silence and the, the not only the need to, uh, to not know, you, you don't have to know, but the realization that you can't, right. can't actually exhaust God in your mind. And I probably had been thinking for much of my life that I'm sort of doing that. I would never say that. But deep down, I think that's what was happening. So for me, all that negative stuff was a necessary, almost purging experience to go through that has made me a little less fretful about whether I'm right or not and uh, not needing to correct other people, not looking as much, at least, for theological debates, that kind of thing. So... And it, so it, it definitely affected me, but I think in the, at the end of the day, for the better, I mean, I can't imagine now, had I continued on that old path, mm-hmm. I'd, I can't imagine what I'd be like, probably even harder to live with than I am now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and knowing your personality a little bit, you are an Enneagram type six, correct? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, <laughs> I feel Is like... Is that, that obvious? Sorry. <laughs> Well, I've been a part of Evolving Faith, so I've heard you talk about it. Okay. <laughs> but also, I do understand the Enneagram, so yeah, a little bit obvious. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like that would have also been a huge factor into that whole process and that whole journey with all of a sudden your safety and security is gone, right? Yes, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, I wonder how I would have processed all this had I been more self-aware of Mm. just who I am. Yeah. That's self-knowledge. And, you know, it's since then that I've gained some of that knowledge. I'm like, well, obviously. Yeah. You know, (laughs) acting out of fear, fear of losing things. And that's, you know, I stayed there longer than I should have. And deep down, I was pushing down impulses to just leave because of being afraid of not knowing what was ahead, of losing security. And, you know, I don't, I'm not ashamed of that. That's just me, you know, and, and that's how, that's what was at work in me. And I think part of this has helped me to become more self-aware, which is a nice thing. Well, sometimes it's a nice thing, but, you know, it's it's good to know yourself. Yeah, right. And how people don't know themselves very well, typically, you know, and, and we react out of things and we get angry quickly and we have, we get into these debates over dumb things. And that tells us more about our own selves than it does about anything else. And to be aware of that is, is a gift. Yeah. Well, and I'm an Enneagram type nine. And so. So what's that? Explain what's the nine. Is that the bad one? The what one? Is that the bad one? Bad number? <laughs> no. No. Okay. Well, that's like the peacemaker, the peacekeeper type. Oh, okay. Okay. Sarah Bessie. She's also a type nine. Okay. That's cool. So. For me, I can tend to be like scared of the conflict at, that might yeah. come with asking these questions. So I've been learning to just 
ask them anyways. Mm. And to, even if I feel angry about things, because that's also part of who I am, to just be okay with letting it out. And to be okay with not being sure about these stories in the Bible that don't make sense to me, mm. but to talk through it and to share that with people instead of not talking because I'm scared of what they're going to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, um, I, I definitely understand that indirectly. Yeah. Because I know many people in my life are like that. And, you know, my way of processing it, see, this is so helpful to know how people process things, right? But <laughs> my way of processing is so different that, I mean, people say to me, you know, Pete, you're so brave to stand up for what you think is right. I'm like, brave? I, I, that had nothing to do with it. I'm not brave. I just don't know what else to do. Mm, yeah. Can't wake up in the morning. I didn't wake up in the morning and say, I will be courageous today and stand up for what I believe. I just right. I just see something and I can't help but articulate it. And I don't even think of the consequences. Yeah. I just say, this is great. Come on, follow me. You know, and, and people, I mean, uh, a therapist I had uh, years ago, he said that's sort of a prophetic archetype that you sort of see something and you want to move toward that and you want to wave people along with you to see that, right? As opposed to like a um, a pastoral or a shepherding archetype, you know, that that might be more concerned about, um, you know, doing that more gently in a more measured way or something like that. So, uh, but we all process differently. And I think that's, you know, if the, if the church, whatever church you go to, was also more aware of different, ways of processing the world, we might have less, fewer problems. <laughs> People wouldn't have feel like, I have to leave, you know. Yeah. But then we just use the Enneagram numbers against each Oh, that's just a nine. Yeah, just, right. that's just a, so there goes Pete again. He's a six. Don't listen to him, you know. <laughs> Instead of actually understanding the people and what they're <laughs> trying to say. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you had mentioned that you went through that period of time where you were like, really questioning and basically didn't know if god was real <laughs> yeah you ask this question in your book this sin of certainty when the dust clears and in the quiet of your own heart what kind of god do you believe in really and why so you currently call yourself an agnostic christian correct i think everybody's an agnostic christian frankly at the end of the day but yeah so then how would you answer your own question and what does that actually mean to be an agnostic christian well, I, for me, it's just another way of saying what so many people have recognized throughout history, that when you talk about God, the word mystery has to be right up there in front of you, but that um, we actually don't know in the same way we know other things about God, right? We don't, I mean, I know that I'm speaking to a microphone right now. Yep. I'm staring at my laptop, right? Is it, I know those things. I also know that my wife Sue is in the other room right now. I know that. Now, do I 100% know? No, she could have evaporated. She could have been, you know, beamed up by aliens, but I'm pretty darn certain she's in the next room reading or something or playing with the dog. So I know those things, but we cannot know God in the same way. Knowing is not a primarily intellectual exercise, but it's a full body. It's intuitional. It's emotional. And that to me is a way of answering that question. You know, what is God to me? God is mystery, and I I absorb and I intuit and I experience God, and my intellect sort of comes along for the ride. So for me, I mean, the way I've put it in other contexts is that I've learned to honor my head without living in it. Hmm. And I am who I am. You know, I like asking questions. I, I like reading articles with big words in it and trying to understand what the Bible is doing. And that's, that's my profession. But that can be exaggerated to the point where you think that is going to solve the mysteries of life. And that is the fallacy, I think, of sort of a hyper-rationalistic, modernist way of thinking, that we can control the universe with, we can figure everything out. Well, what if, you know, what if a lot of theologians or Greek Orthodox theologians are right that God is the very ground of being? God is being. That changes the game a lot for, it's not like God is an object out there that I can sort of analyze, but 
God is beyond all that, <laughs> and 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 not not uh, we we cannot analyze God as we would a distant planet or something like that. And for me, that just that's a relaxing thing, and I'm I'm very happy to sort of leave it at that. At this stage in my life, who knows what'll happen in a few years? But that, that's where I am now, and I have been for a while. I'm just very very happy to just to just let it all be and not try to figure it out. What I try to figure out is the Bible, which is a very different thing. Yes. The Bible's not God. Right. And that's that's confused a lot, I think. And you know, sometimes when I say when I'm speaking places and I'll say something about biblical interpretation like like I don't think Moses wrote the Pentateuch or something like that. And mm-hmm. they'll say, you know, you're you're attacking the faith. And I said, "No, I'm just attacking you, <laughs> you, know, you have to understand, like, you know, or to say you're attacking the Bible. I'm not attacking yeah. the Bible. I might be attacking what you think of the Bible, but those right. aren't the same thing. And that's certainly not what, not what God is like. So I'm sort of like two or three layers removed from the analysis of God, which is very different than the analysis of yeah. text. Right. And I feel like we can often put the Bible as like the fourth member of the Trinity. Yeah. And hold it like in such a holy place that we actually miss so much of what it's actually trying to tell us. Right, right. And like life is full of paradoxes. So why can't our faith and the Bible and God also be part of that too, right? Well, it would have to be if if we take mystery seriously. Yeah. Then paradox is a natural kind of place to be, which is really not what modern people like. Right. They, they like, like the certainty. certainty. <laughs> and, and that's the problem, again, with the cultural thing we, we were talking about earlier with, again, not to pick on evangelicalism, but I think it's largely true, that evangelicalism in its history has been essentially modernist, looking for that kind of certainty and not really living in the reality of of mystery of the faith where we don't know and we live in paradoxes all the time and and those are bad things for um this intellectually driven kind of faith and the irony is that you know evangelicalism i think is is fundamentally an intellectual exercise in terms of its system of thinking its doctrine but yet it pushes away or explains away large intellectual strains of thought in order to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like quasi-intellectual. It's a very protectionistic, yeah. and it brings in what it wants to bring in, but it doesn't always address evidence to the contrary very well. And it's easier for me to do that now because I say, I, I don't know, and this is paradoxical, and, and I have reasons for believing in God that go beyond how this argument is settled right now. And maybe God's bigger than I understand. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Life isn't as black and white as we think. Um, going back to the Bible specifically and the paradox of that. Some people believe that the Bible is like an unnecessary, not the Bible, the Old Testament oh, yeah. is an unnecessary <laughs> part of the Bible because of Jesus and the New Testament. So what are your thoughts about that? And how do you believe the life of Jesus affects the whole Bible. Yeah, I, mean, I understand the point. There are places of tension between things we read in the old and things we read in the new. Totally. But I think it's a tension that has to be respected and embraced. And, and fundamentally, because you know Jesus was Jewish, that's a rather obvious point. But it, I mean, you might be surprised at how people react to that. You know, well, not really, just on the outside. But yeah. Jesus knew better. Um, And Paul was thoroughly Jewish, and neither Jesus nor Paul were interested in eradicating the tradition of old. Mm -hmm. Um, Paul especially may have pushed some things beyond where the tradition was. I think that's true. But both Jesus and Paul and the New Testament as a whole recognize that there are, you know, what theologians call areas of continuity and discontinuity between the Testaments. There are places where it's like, well, obviously, this what Jesus says makes no sense unless you understand that he's getting this right out of Jeremiah or Isaiah or Deuteronomy or something like that. Yeah. Likewise, Paul is so Jewish when he is, you know, 
interpreting the Old Testament in sometimes very creative ways to draw Jesus into it, that creative way of interpreting, that's a hermeneutic uh, that we talked about before. That's a very Jewish way of handling text. Mm-hmm. So uh, Paul would have been appalled at the thought that he would be considered someone to found a new religion. Right. For Paul, it was a continuation of the Abrahamic faith. Now, at the end of the day, a lot of Jews, probably most Jews, disagreed with him because by the time you get to the second century, you don't have Christianity that's largely a Jewish movement with some Gentiles. Now it's fundamentally Gentile. So uh, historically speaking, Paul's argument was not convincing for many Jews. But irrespective of that fact, he was Jewish, and he was talking about how Jesus brings into focus and its true purpose the story of Israel in the Old Testament. So just just to read them and to take these guys seriously, the gospel writers and Paul, you can't say, well, we're done with the Old Testament, because they would have been horrified at the thought. Yeah, right, because that's like the foundation of what they built their life on and their faith. Yeah, I mean, I would. I think that's a fair way to put it. I might put it a little bit differently. I think foundation, it depends on what we mean by the metaphor, but I think yeah. the foundation was Jesus. Right. But they were Jews who were believing in Jesus, and so... But it's still like that belief system, right? Yes, that's what I mean. It was the, the, it was the language that they had of their tradition. Yeah. They never for one minute thought following Jesus meant giving up on Abraham. Right. It, but what does it do with the law, right? What does it do with yes. eating kosher? And that's where it gets a little bit tricky because, you know, Paul rather famously said, you know, circumcision, nah. <laughs> you know, yeah, dietary right. laws, nah. But the question is, who is he saying it to? And a lot of scholars think, and this makes sense to me, that he's really speaking to Gentiles at that point and to Jews who want Gentiles to adopt Jewish ways. And so I think Paul is saying, and again, I'm not alone here, Paul is not saying none of this stuff matters anymore, throw it away, it's wrong. He's saying Gentiles don't have to partake in that to be full members of the faith of Abraham. Yeah. As Gentiles, they can enter. Now, Jews, by all means, <laughs> you know, if you want to keep maintaining dietary laws and, and, and observing circumcision, that's not at all wrong. But what makes you a full child of Abraham now is faith in Christ. Right. So do those things or don't do those things, but it doesn't actually make a difference. It doesn't make a difference, some of those things. But then again, you know, Paul will quote the law in places too. So in other words, Paul's not saying law is bad. I think what he's saying is, I think what he's doing is actually moving Torah, the law, from the center of Jewish experience and trying to put it a little bit more off-center, like in the periphery a bit. And replacing Torah with uh, Jesus. Right. And that's what makes it eventually Christianity, right? So um, so I, I think so much is gained for people, just normal people reading the Bible and thinking about this stuff. So much is gained by allowing the tensions to stay and not mm-hmm. feel like you have to agree or disagree with the Old Testament on every point to be a Christian or not. Right. There's some things that like I really resonate with or other things I don't, like God drowning everyone in chapter six of the Bible, or God, you know, eradicating a population so his people could move into their land. Right. I have problems with that. I I I don't even try to reconcile that with the New Testament. It's just a different perspective. But there's so many things in the old that are just like lament psalms, just the honesty of faith. That comes from the fact that this faith is the Jewish, the Israelite story, hundreds and hundreds of years. And a lot went wrong. And so they have this whole tradition of an honest lament and complaint towards God, Mm -hmm. which the New Testament doesn't have, because these writers were all within probably, let's say, roughly a 40-year time span, maybe 50 or 60 years. Not enough time for things to go wrong. Plus, you think Jesus is going to come back soon? There's no need for all this lament stuff. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come to an end very, very soon. And that, in that sense, I think the Old Testament, Christians today have more in common with the Old Testament in that respect than they do with the New, because we're living in a prolonged period of 
waiting <laughs> for the you know the cataclysmic some sort of apocalyptic end whatever we want to call it and a lot goes wrong and we have a lot of reason to lament and to question god and to feel abandoned by god yeah you know and that's important that's 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 a that's, a, that's a, an important thing for the church to to feel comfortable with yeah and do you think that the bible then is more of a um, story and an expression of thoughts and feelings based on what they understood at the time and less of a literal uh, recounting of what happened? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much where I am um, and have been for a while. I think the Bible is a collection of writings of people of faith mm -hmm. that is an expression of their faith as it's moving along history. But I I mean, I don't think, you know, people disagree, this is fine, but I don't think it's sort of God whispering into people's ears saying, now write this and write it exactly as I tell you because yeah. we have to get this right. And, you know, what, what I tell people when this comes up is that, you know, if if that's the intention of the Bible and if that's the intention of God and in inspiring the writers the then the bible does a great job of covering that up because you begin you begin the bible with the creation story in genesis 1 then another one in genesis 2 and they can't be reconciled yeah you just lay them side by side they're telling different perspectives or you know two different histories of israel that are not really compatible whether it's you know samuel kings on the one hand or the books of chronicles on the other hand and you have four gospels that tell a very similar story, but clearly you have writers writing from a different perspective, and it seems baked into the text yeah. not to treat it as sort of like this easy-to-read rule book where everyone agrees on everything. It's, it's very diverse, and that's the thing that the church gets to struggle with. It's a privilege <laughs> to work mm -hmm. through this stuff and read it and try to understand it and come to some understanding of what we're supposed to do, and that's not always obvious. Yeah. So then the big question is, do you believe the Bible is inerrant? Well, the way what inerrant means typically in our culture is that it's historically accurate or it's always morally or theologically precise and accurate and has to be followed. Yeah. And in that sense, no, I don't think the Bible is inerrant. And the reason I don't think it's inerrant is because I read it a lot and I just don't see that jumping off the pages when I read it. And so for me to like deny inerrancy is actually being for me being faithful to what I'm reading hmm. rather than making something up. Yeah. And that's so, important. I think, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's, you know, okay. So for example, okay. Hey, ends doesn't believe in, in inerrancy. So ends, does that make you an errantist? rather than an inerrantist? And no, my response is like, that's the wrong question to ask. You're already prejudging yeah. the whole matter by giving it those labels. I think the Bible is very diverse. Yeah. And I think there are things that are challenged. There are things that biblical writers themselves challenge about other biblical writers. There are things that um, have changed in Christian theology and throw in Jewish theology while we're at it mm -hmm. over the millennia because people have said no we don't we don't think that this really reflects god i don't think the the assumption in throughout the entire bible frankly that slavery is just something the way it is and god makes laws about how to handle slaves i don't think that reflects the mind of god that i see in the gospel ultimately and where the story is going and i'm not disrespecting the bible when i say that i'm just engaging it in my own world and with my own experiences and the experiences of many, many other people. Mm -hmm. you know, I think slavery is wrong. I think earth care is good. You don't find that in the Bible. Right. Right. So what do you do? So, you know, we're always thinking about things for ourselves. We're always taking on the responsibility to work through what it means to believe in God here and now. And the Bible actually shows us not the answers to those questions that we ask, but it shows us how earnestly people of old were asking their own questions and were watching them come up with their answers to those questions. And that's a model for us. 
Yeah, so then if you view the Bible that way, what makes it valuable to you? Well, I think just that process that the the permission to be okay with understanding God in your life. Yeah. And that's that's enough. I also think that it's see, it's not the okay. I don't want to split hairs here. It's not yeah. whether the Bible is valuable. It's whether yeah. Jesus is valuable. Correct. And then the question becomes, how does the Bible bear witness to this Jesus? Yeah. Well, that's where the fun begins, you know, because right. people have different answers to that. But that's why I said before, you know, fundam- the fundamental thing that drove the New Testament writers is really the experience of a crucified and risen Messiah. It's not the Bible. The Bible, of course, is a non-negotiable partner for talking about it, but everything they said was driven by their experience of faith, not by pure exegesis of the text. It's no different for us. And so the question is, how does the Bible function in forming faith? How does it bear witness to Christ? And the, the, you know, the kick in the pants here is that, it, okay, it bears witness to Christ, but it bears witness to Christ in ancient idioms, in ancient ways of thinking. And that's why paying attention to the Bible, I think, is a very rewarding experience for this journey of faith that we're all on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it doesn't function as a rule book. You know, in other words, you know, the value of the Bible, there's a value that remains. In fact, may even be a greater value when we not think of it as sort of like a very long rather confusing, at times tedious, but nevertheless fundamentally true rule book that we have to decipher what is the complete blueprint for our lives. Um, that, that to me, is, is not a high view of the Bible. I think that's a low view of the Bible. That's not reading it for what it's worth. That's reading it for what we want out of it. Yeah, exactly. Have you ever thought in all of your studying Probably. and learning uh, <laughs> that you might be wrong? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like the what way it is. What do you do is. with that? I say, oh well, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't. I, of course, I mean, what do I know at the end of the day? But yeah. all, all I can do is, as the person I am with my experiences and my thinking and my, you know, my 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 reason the way the wesleyan quadrilateral has you know my reason my tradition my experience yeah this is how i see things and at the end of the day if that doesn't translate into some type of better life meaning i'm more content i'm more um less prone to be angry with people or I'm really looking out for their welfare more than my own. You know, all the stuff the Bible sort of talks about, humility, not pride. That's the that's the end proof of all this for me, you know. And that's why, you know, I try to keep those two things together very much, you know, what I think and what I do with what I think. Yeah. And I think that's why some people may see you as being brave because you're still going with what you feel is in your heart is right and not being afraid of asking those questions and digging into the hard stuff and a lot of people don't want to go there so yeah and that's that's true and that's why there are some people that go there yeah right and i could say the same thing about a whole lot of things where other people go that i don't go myself right so we sort of need each other other a little bit right yep yeah exactly yeah so our going to bring this to a close very soon but i have a couple more questions okay so for people who may be burnt out from the striving to do regular devotions and keep up with consistent bible reading for the sake of their faith what would you say to those who are struggling to love the bible um honestly i would say don't worry about it (laughs) and i don't mean that in a cavalier way but i think sometimes people have to walk away from the bible for a while because it's a source of trauma and it's the bible is not god and god understands and sometimes we just have to sort of clean our palate um and i feel the same way about church like i just i can't go to church right now then don't go 
But what God will be mad at me. How do you know God's going to be mad at you? Why are you not going? I just, I just can't. Okay, that's all right. Mm-hmm. Maybe find some other way to commune with God. Get an app. <laughs> you know, I, I have this app that I listen to every morning. Uh, Pray as you go. Yeah, it's Catholic. I hope that doesn't freak people out. But you know, you can <laughs> hardly tell. They're really nice people. Uh, but it, they're like ten to twelve minute little lessons that involve a little bit of musical interlude and time for prayer but listening to a bible story from different angles a couple different times and it's it's sort of nice i mean i i enjoy that i i feel very centered and connected when i do that i miss it when i don't do it but you know sometimes people have to find different ways of maintaining their own spiritual journeys that doesn't involve the things that they've heard their whole lives they absolutely have to do or God's going to be mad at them. Is God really going to be like looking down on you like because you missed church? Hmm. Is that really what this is about? I hope not. You know, this is, you know, I, I think if people make decisions like that with integrity and with honesty and with some humility... I think it's all good. I think it's fine. And and I think people should not feel guilty for where they are cuz you know that that like not being all that excited about reading the Bible or going to church or praying that's not necessarily going backwards. Mm-hmm. That could be I, I in fact I think it is going forwards as well. well where is it going to end up? I don't have the foggiest idea where it's going to end up and neither do you. But one thing I do know is you can't play a game. Yeah. You can't make believe you're not like that to look good for who? <laughs> right. Yourself? Mm-hmm. God? Are you kidding me? You know, or is it other people? You know, it's 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 rough. And th- see, that to me takes a lot of courage. That's a very courageous thing to do to say, I'm going to make a decision. I'm not going to go to church for four weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, and that four weeks may turn into four months. And I know some, for some people it's turned into years. Yeah. But they're spiritually alive too. Yeah. I know experienced that. Churches, yeah, yeah, a lot of people have. Church can yeah. hurt. And the thing is that, you know, at some point there are other churches out there too. They're not the churches that we've experienced. And that's something worth finding because I do think. It's really this. This isn't intended for us to do all alone all the time. Yeah, there may be a time where we need that, but I think at the end of the day, there, there are people around you that is, you know, how you see God more than just in your in yourself and in your own mind. Right, community is so important, especially in that in between that journey, that wilderness, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, to keep us grounded, I guess. Yeah. Well, not just, I mean, I definitely agree with you, but um, others have said, too, that can help you believe when you can't. Right. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. But that means you have to be in a community that's honest about the lament of the journey of faith. And that's yeah. that's the thing. The trick is finding that. Yeah, those people you can be safe with. Right. Yeah. yeah. I have a quote from you, and then we'll close. It okay. says, Reading the Bible responsibly and respectfully today means learning what it meant for ancient Israelites to talk about God the way they did and not pushing alien expectations onto texts written long ago and far away. I think that's a really good reminder of when we do pick up the Bible to read. Wow, that was really good. Did I actually write that? You did. Okay, where was it? The Bible tells you so. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do remember it. I remember where. I get mixed up sometimes. Yeah, you've written a couple things. (laughs) So... Yeah, so thank you so much for sharing some insight on your journey and what the Bible means and how we can understand that better, um, bringing some clarity to places where people may need some understanding. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, and, and I appreciate being uh, on your podcast, too. It's been fun. If your journey with the Bible has been anything like mine, Pete's insights and responses to what is found in Scripture has helped me so much. Being one who religiously read the Bible and prayed in an attempt to check the boxes and maybe feel closer to God, it has been such a breath of fresh air to realize I don't have to do it in order to be right with God. I have come to understand that the Bible is full of nuance and contradictions even. 
that is written by humans who experience suffering and pain, faith and doubt, joy and heartache, just like me. It's people presenting their understanding of who God is through their cultural lens and struggling with many of the same questions we do. If you'd like to hear more of what Pete has to say on this topic, please check out his podcast, The Bible for Normal People. You can also visit the show notes to find a link to his blog, books, and website. If you have any questions or comments on this episode or need further clarification on anything you've heard, please don't hesitate to reach out or contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. Your reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Thanks for listening. <laughs>